In July 1975, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union seemed to be thawing slightly. The Vietnam War had ended, discussions on limiting American and Soviet strategic missiles were proceeding. It looked, perhaps, like the two superpowers were learning to live with each other. Nothing symbolised this rapprochement like the handshake exchanged between the American astronaut Thomas P. Stafford and the Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov shortly after a NASA Apollo spacecraft docked in orbit with a Soviet Soyuz capsule. The two parties to the space race, a contest animated at least as much by ideological fervour as scientific inquiry, looked to have called it a draw. There has always been a faintly utopian aspect to space exploration. In fictional representations and real-world political rhetoric, the idea has taken root that once freed from the surly bonds of Earth, etc., we could put our divisions behind us to explore together realms where none of that stuff much matters. It is certainly a recurring theme among astronauts themselves that seeing the world from that distance lends a benign and inclusive perspective. But does that help the rest of us? Do we all need to be as smart and as brave as astronauts to think like astronauts? What is the future of space cooperation? This is The Foreign Desk. We absolutely need to take that model from space and start behaving like crew members and not passengers here on Spaceship Earth. Every astronaut I've ever known worked hard to get to space only to discover the Earth. Space technology is actually very intertwined with climate research, with doing things that are benefiting life on Earth. Throughout this whole pandemic, when people were using infrared thermometers, you know, to measure people's temperatures, that's a direct NASA technology of measuring the heat between planets. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined first of all by the historian and analyst of international air and space exploration, Bill Barry. Bill formerly served as NASA's chief historian from 2010 until 2020. Bill, if we go back to the start of all this, they call it the space race because it is a literal competition between the United States and the Soviet Union, at least in the early stages. When and why did the US and the USSR start thinking maybe it didn't have to be that way? When did they start at least working together a little bit? Well, the interesting part about the space race is that it actually starts with cooperation. In 1954, a bunch of scientists got together and decided that they wanted to study the Earth. The International Geophysical Year was being planned. And one of the aspects of that was they wanted to have a satellite to study the Earth because they knew the technology was getting close. And the United States and the Soviet Union both said that they would launch a satellite in support of the International Geophysical Year. So that sort of started the whole thing. So it started as cooperation. But when the Soviets surprised everybody by launching Sputnik, then it launched this whole competitive dynamic. But even then, there were efforts to try and collaborate, uh, at least from the U.S. side, on space stuff. Was it one of those things where the two space programs, NASA and its Soviet counterpart, were a lot less interested in the rivalry than their respective governments were? Certainly NASA was less interested in the rivalry aspect and would rather have collaborated. On the Soviet side, it's a little different because the Soviet space program, they didn't really have a space agency like NASA. Their space program was managed by the folks who built their nuclear missiles for them. And because of that, it was all highly classified and secretive. So on their side, I think their scientists and engineers would have loved to talk to folks at NASA, but it just wasn't possible to do at the time. 
So if we skate over a few years or at least a couple of decades of early space exploration and, and we get to that extraordinary moment in 1975, which is more or less peak Cold War, or certainly the Cold War at that point is pretty chilly, and yet we end up with this extraordinary event in orbit, the handshake between Apollo and Soyuz. Glad to see you. Uh, what do we now understand about how and why that happened? Whose initiative was it? Well, I think both sides were interested in it, but it actually, the impetus starts from the United States. President Nixon at the time wanted to have a less difficult relations with the Soviet Union, was hoping that by recognizing their capabilities in various things, that they would have an ear of detente and a lessening of tensions. In our talks this week with the leaders of the Soviet Union, both sides have had a chance to measure the length of our strides toward peace and security. I believe that those strides have been substantial and that now we have well begun the long journey which will lead us to a new age in the relations between our two countries. And so recognizing them as a equal in space exploration was one of the approaches that they took to do that. So Apollo Soyuz comes out of that. What do we know about how, I guess, minute or tense the negotiations to make that grand piece of theater happen were? Well, actually, we have quite a bit of information from the folks who actually did the discussions with each other, because there are lots of sort of secretive talks that initially on early contacts made between senior NASA officials and the uh, Russian side. And the senior NASA folks kept extensive notes and wrote about it afterwards. So on an engineer to engineer, scientist to scientist, and even sort of bureaucrat to bureaucrat level, things went really well. They knew that their political leaders wanted some sort of agreement in an event to happen. They knew they had a timeline to make it happen. And as engineers often do, they just sort of started getting to work and let's make this happen. But the relationship deteriorated dramatically and very quickly after the Apollo-Soyuz mission. And this is the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, which you know led to Olympic boycotts here on the ground as well. Yeah. International cooperation in space always is driven by politics, right? So political leaders, if they agree that cooperation is a good idea, then it'll happen. So the expectation on the U.S. side at the time was that the Soviets would start acting more like a sort of normal country and accept the international order. The Soviets on their side saw detente as, well, we recognize that we're equal to you, and so we can start behaving the way we want to behave without having to worry about you guys. <laughs> Sound familiar? Anyway, this dynamic didn't go very well. Of course, uh, there were clashes in Africa over Angola, uh, but the key one was, of course, the invasion of Afghanistan. President Carter demanded last Friday evening that the Russians pull out of Afghanistan. There were an estimated 50 to 60,000 Soviet troops already there. That really put an end to collaboration, and the United States allowed the agreement on space cooperation to expire and left it that way for a good decade and a half. Did the end of the Cold War in the early 90s open up a new era in space cooperation now that the United States and what is now Russia are, well, at least not as much trying to prove anything to each other? Yeah, even the change when Gorbachev came in and Glasnost and Perestroika, those things in the late 80s actually started to sort of change things. And NASA was discussing reopening the agreement and having some sort of collaboration on science missions. Uh, there's discussions about the Halley's Comet mission in the late 80s and Mars missions possibly. But it really, it was the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s that then drove the collaboration. And on the U.S. side, people who were objecting to it, largely very conservative folks in U.S. Congress who were not happy with that idea, realized that, in fact, it was a good idea to keep Soviet-era rocket scientists busy 
doing peaceful space exploration rather than having to move places like Iran and North Korea and percolating the ideas around about how to build missiles. So from the U.S. perspective, the space station program and inviting the Soviet or the Russians now into the space station program was a key step in bringing the Russian Federation into the sort of modern world and helping to move into capitalism and the Western democratic system. Up until very, very recently, the two space programs, NASA and Roscosmos, the Russian successor to the Soviet space program, seem incredibly enmeshed to the extent that earlier this year we saw a a US-built Cygnus cargo craft going aloft on a Ukrainian-built Antares rocket powered by Russian-made engines. Yeah, that was intentional. I mean, in the early 90s, when they agreed to bring the Russian Federation to the International Space Station program, and also a whole raft of other collaborative activities happened in aeronautics research and space research in the 90s. Once that started, the intention was to enmesh those things together so it would be hard for anyone to tear it apart. So if you make it an international agreement that's hard to take apart, then it's likely that the program will last longer. So that was intentional. So the space station was built in ways that it's virtually impossible to take it apart nationally into national pieces. Uh, it'd be extremely difficult to do that kind of thing. We were talking earlier about how Russia's invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, or the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, ended a previous era of cooperation. And in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Western economic retaliation, we've seen Russia announcing that it will halt cooperation on the International Space Station. Do you get the sense that this current era of cooperation between Russia and the United States might now be at an end? I'm afraid it may well be, although it's interesting to watch the Russian approach to uh, the International Space Station because the director of Roscosmos, Mr. Vergozin, is frequently making threats and obnoxious <laughs> remarks about things on his Twitter account and his sort of other social media things. But he's never quite walked away. In fact, he uh, issued a threat last month in the middle of March saying that if the sanctions against certain Russian space industries were removed, you know, they would pull out of the International Space Station. He gave them a deadline of the end of March. Well, the space station partners all responded to him and said, well, you know, there's really kind of not much we can do about that, or we support uh, the space station, but, uh, you know, our governments are the ones who are making these decisions. You have to talk to them. And Rogozin, rather than pulling out, said, well, okay, this is unacceptable, and I'm going to talk to my government about what we're going to do about this in the future. So he really didn't do anything. He blinked on the issue of pulling out a space station. I don't think it's likely that the Russians will pull out because if they do, their human spaceflight program really has no place to go. And the space station program is really the only thing they've got going for their civil side of their space program. The military space program, that's a pretty active thing and they get lots of money. The civil side doesn't and depends on the International Space Station to maintain the appearance that Russia is still a major power in space. Bill, thank you. That was NASA's former chief historian, Bill Barry. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Joining me now is Nicole Stott, a veteran NASA astronaut, aquanaut, artist and author of Back to Earth, What Life in Space Taught Me About Our Home Planet. Nicole flew two missions aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery and spent 104 days living and working in space as a crew member on the International Space Station. And she's joined by Christina Korp, an astronaut manager, space advisor and the president of Purpose Entertainment. Christina also leads Space for a Better World. 
world. Christina, I'll start with you. On May 3rd at the London Science Museum, you're helping to put on the Aim Higher Gala, which is marking the 50th anniversary of Apollo 16. Denoting that anniversary is obviously important, but how much of the event is also about reminding people of the importance of space as a collaborative venture? I founded this foundation called Space for a Better World because I have been a fly in the wall of the lives of the Apollo astronauts' lives, and I have heard thousands of moon landing memories, and that is something that I think that this generation doesn't understand. So when we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo 16, the fifth moon landing, I'm always reminded of a quote that I like to bring up from John F. Kennedy, which is, we celebrate the past to awaken the future. I think it's really important to remind people of our successes and how those missions also united the world. And then now we're looking to the future of space, which is a much, much more diverse, inclusive space, including female astronauts. And this event at the London Science Museum is very heavily female oriented and focused on purpose to showcase what has happened since Apollo and what we're looking to in the future of space. Nicole, at the time of the Apollo program, of course, and in the early days of the space program, it was very much a competitive business. It was nations attempting to get one over on each other. I mean, obviously, in the early stages, the United States and the Soviet Union. But in your experience as an astronaut, is there any of that at all among actual astronauts? Even when you're dealing with each other on the ground, never mind working in space, does national competition figure as a thing in your thinking at all? No, I think as astronauts, it really doesn't. I think there tends to be a competitive nature in, you know, people that are A-type personalities and wanting to do their best at everything, right? But I think it's more of a positive, like uplifting kind of competition. In fact, you know, in order to survive in space, you've got to be supporting each other all the way, even though you're always trying to do your best. I think what I experienced was absolutely an environment of cooperation, even if we were reflecting on the times where there was serious competition trying to drive who got to space first doing whatever it was. And then you look even historically at that and you see how along the way the scientists and the engineers we're really working together to bring these missions to life. And then you've got something like, you know, the Apollo Soyuz mission, which, you know, still at the time of the Soviet Union, early 70s, and you've got these two commanders shaking hands, Tom Stafford and Alexei Leonov, across the hatch of their spaceships and going on to be best friends for the rest of their lives and sharing that experience in both a technical way, but also a personal way that I think has been built on through Shuttle Mir, through the space station program, and as we look to the future of exploring further off our planet. I don't think that'll be any one country doing that. Just to follow that up, Nicole, do events back on Earth actually affect the interactions of astronauts at all, though? If I've got this right, aboard the International Space Station right now, uh, three Russians, three Americans, and a German. Those are obviously three countries at all sorts of loggerheads back down here on Earth. Would that even be occurring to anybody on the ISS as a thing to talk about? Or is part of it the fact that when you're in a circumstance like the ISS, there's part of you thinking, what on earth, literally, would be the point in arguing about something like this where we are now? 
I absolutely think it's in their minds. I absolutely think as a crew, they're having those conversations as they're floating around the dinner table or floating together in front of the window, looking at back on earth and saying, what on earth, you know? But it's not an argument. Not that everybody always agrees on everything, but I would say that, you know, it's a place where conversations, discussions, even, you know, amongst those seven people, they're probably trying to say, okay, if it was us, what would we be doing to help solve these problems? You know, these kinds of things you can't ignore. And the crew members are no different in that. They have access to the information through live interweb now too. So they can see it even if it's not being passed up to them. And they want, I think, as kind of a family of astronauts there as a crew to be discussing these things, to be reflecting on it. And I would say through what Christina and I are motivated by too in this idea of space for a better world is that pretty much continuously through the history of the space program, we've been able to like lift up above it, you know, rise above what's going on on Earth, work together in a really meaningful way, and then figure out how through what we're doing does that temper, hopefully, really and truly praying tempers what is happening physically on Earth. I wanted to add to that if I could, just because I did get to know Alexei Leonov and did events with him and with Buzz Aldrin. And even he admitted he would have been the first man on the moon if Russia had been able to succeed. When he found out that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had successfully landed on the moon, he said he was cheering at home. He was jumping up and down in his living room. So that's something that I think that a lot of the astronauts, regardless of where they come from, share is this camaraderie of rooting for humanity to do something that was considered impossible. And that's what space represents the best, I think. Christina, let's talk a bit about this idea of space for a better world, because this is a question that's been raised about space programs for as long as there have been space programs, which is all this extraordinary amounts of money and energy and expertise that get spent on this. What good does it actually do any of us back down here? Is there a simple way to answer that, a simple reason why nations should be continuing to collaborate in terms of space exploration? Absolutely. One of the things that I realized when I fell into the space world was that I was an average American who only knew about Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin who walked on the moon. And then now I have been exposed to so much into deep space that I realize the mainstream public and even politicians and leaders of major companies don't realize. They'll say, oh, we don't shouldn't be having all these billionaires spending all this money on going to space. And yet they'll say, we need to fix this planet. We need to focus on you know, ways to solve problems on Earth. And they're usually, and Nicole points this out as well, and other, other astronauts do, they're using images from space of the Earth. Every astronaut I've ever known worked hard to get to space only to discover the Earth. Space for a better world, what we're really trying hard to do is get people to understand that space technology is actually very intertwined with climate research, with doing things that are benefiting life on Earth. Throughout this whole pandemic, when people were using infrared thermometers you know, to measure people's temperatures, that's a direct NASA technology of measuring the heat between planets. You know, People think, oh, I don't need to care about space, but if you've got a cell phone, you are using space with satellites in orbit right now. GPS, that's a probably one that gets used more than anything else. And people don't associate it with space. And this is why we want to try to bridge that gap of awareness, not just for the public, but people who have the power to change, to make change in a broad way. You know, I was at the World Economic Forum and everybody's talking about investing in clean energy. 
solar panel farms, and they don't even understand that space technology that was developed 60 years ago. So we're trying really hard to get those people who have the power to make change, look to space technology to solve some of the world's biggest problems. You're probably not looking there and not realizing what a resource it is to do good on Earth. Nicole, do you think there is any argument that it's maybe better for space exploration and therefore, by extension, better for all of us if space is a competitive rather than a cooperative sphere? Because obviously the early stages of the space race are the United States and the Soviet Union driving each other literally to ever greater heights. Is it ultimately likelier that more gets done faster if it is countries trying to get ahead of each other than countries working together? Well, I think more than countries trying to get ahead of each other, it's hopefully underlying it is whatever country trying to solve the, you know, the really challenging problem in, you know, in the best way and getting it out there soonest for the benefit, like Christina says, of all life on Earth. And I like to think about it that way, you know, that everything we're doing, whether it's government funded international space agency work that's going on in space, low Earth orbit, or as we go further off the planet, and, you know, the billionaires we mentioned, the commercial companies that are looking at extending their commerce, their competition as well into the space environment. Ultimately, it's all about improving life on Earth. And if it takes a little competition to accelerate some of those solutions, competition is not always a, a negative thing, right? It's invigorating in some ways. I mean, when you're racing somebody down the track, even if you're joking around, there's like a level of energy that comes when you're when you're trying to do that and you're trying to find the best solution. And so I think it's always going to be there. And that can be a good thing. Christine, if we think ahead to the next likely big headline-catching milestones in space exploration, which might be a return of human beings to the moon, a mission to Mars, is it remotely imaginable that any of those will be anything other than a single superpower undertaking this as an exercise to an extent, at least, in national branding? I mean, we're not going to get, or maybe we are, the combined United States-Chinese mission to Mars. It may not be the combined Chinese-United States mission to Mars, but there are, I believe, 11 nations that have signed the Artemis Accords, which is to put the first woman and the first person of color on the moon. So there is definitely an international effort to go back to the moon together with a much, much more diverse group of people and trying to create a permanent presence there, which I know, again, is hard for some people. Why should we go back to the moon? But there's a lot of reasons why, if we can go back to the moon and learn how to live on another planet and what we learn from that, that'll also enable us hopefully to take a lot of energy resources off planet so that we quit polluting the earth. We maybe can start doing something that I know Nicole is a big advocate for, which is space-based solar power. There's a lot of things that if we can go to the moon and start establishing more there, we can hopefully solve problems that, again, benefit the earth. Nicole, how possible do you think it would be, though, in any of those circumstances to, I guess, either rise above or work around what I can imagine are just endless opportunities for transcendentally petty politics, like about whose flag gets to go highest up the nose cone and so on. Is there maybe an argument that, though there are arguments for cooperation, you know, shared expense to say the very least, there's also arguments that you do get an awful lot done quicker if you're having to, I guess, involve, ingest and deal with fewer of other people's opinions? 
Well, I think, you know, again, the International Space Station, I think, is a wonderful example for how we've been able to leverage, pull together, agree upon the ways that each partner country is represented in the mix, whether that's how much of your science gets done, by whom, on board, whether that's whose flag is bigger, although I think they've tried to keep them the same size all the way around the ring of the patch, you know, whose crew members fly when, whose commander when, how decisions are made when emergencies are happening. I remember like these just stacks of multilateral agreement documents that went into describing this whole process. And it seems so burdensome. And then in the end, it's like this well-oiled machine that's working because the countries have all agreed already how how this would work. I think that's how we get our best success. So I kind of joke about this, but it's true too. I mean, I'm looking forward to the Star Trek future, right? <laughs> Where we're thinking of ourselves as Earthlings. We've got this interplanetary you know, thing going on and we've all figured out as we bring more and more participants in, how to, you know, how to spread that across and do that in an equitable way that is based on some kind of decision that was made by all of the species involved, if you look Star Trek-wise. <laughs> Christina, as long as we're getting a little bit utopian about this, then do you think that there is anything that Earth can learn in general terms about how we cooperate down here from how we cooperate up there? One of the things I think that's really valuable that we learn when people go to space is that it's clear that we're humans on the same planet. You know, every astronaut, especially like the moonwalkers, you know, they'll say, well, you you look at that planet and it's clear there's no borders. And that's such a cliche, but that is the truth of the matter. And Nicole can explain this better than me, but I think that that's something that really, really drives home for when people leave Earth, which is why we're such advocates for space tourism and for more people to get that view, because it's so humbling. And it's such a reminder that we all live on this planet together. We've got to take better care of it. It's difficult on the ground. You know, we don't get along that well, some of our countries on the ground, but we can, even Buzz Aldrin used to say, peaceful cooperation above the atmosphere really is a model of something that we hope can increase the more that we do in space and the more people who have the opportunity to get that view. But just to follow that up, Christina, is a lot of that not dependent on how so far relatively exclusive that view has been? Not very many people have seen it. Whereas I can imagine if you go back three or four hundred years, I'm sure seeing the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx was an incredibly awe-inspiring, humbling experience. It's now perhaps less so when there's like several thousand other schlubs pointing their phones at it, having exactly the same experience that you were. Well, I don't know. I mean, the aviation age is a very, very similar model for this. So, you know, obviously when airplanes first began and people who were able to fly, that was something only rich people could do. And now this world of young people, they've got a view of the world that our parents didn't have, that I didn't even have. You know, I have now, of course, but I just think that it's easy to look at it as something that's, that will become blasé, but I don't think so. I mean, I will tell you, I've traveled all over the world with astronauts. We all fight over the window seat. It doesn't ever get old. You know, like all the years I traveled with Buzz Aldrin, I never got the window seat because he wanted to look out the window. So, I mean, it might be easy for some people to get cynical about the idea of this view, but heck, I'm always in the window seat now if I can be. And I think Nicole's probably there with me with that idea. I mean, Nicole, what do you think? Because you are one of that exclusive club of people who have had that view and can therefore probably address my other worry about space cooperation as a model for earthbound cooperation, which is that 
the people in space, like yourself, so far at least, have by definition all been incredibly well-trained, incredibly rigorously drilled, very smart, very disciplined, obviously psychologically judged to be extremely level-headed in a crisis. These are not necessarily descriptions that all apply to all of humanity at large, which I suspect is why we so often end up arguing with each other. Yeah, but I mean, I absolutely believe that, you know, the ways that we've discovered how to live and work peacefully, cooperatively, successfully in a mechanical life support system that's orbiting the planet or in a spaceship that's orbiting or landing on the moon apply directly to our lives here on Earth. And it's like a lot of things where there's all this complexity involved in all of that, right? And there's a lot of complexity involved with how do you get 8 billion people, I don't know if that's the number right now or not, you know, working together on, (laughs) you know, on the planet. It's like ginormous matter of scale to think of, you know, seven people on a space station and tens of thousands on the ground that are working to make that happen as compared to a planet load of people. But I think the underlying ways, the simplicity in it, like Christina was saying, it's like, oh my gosh, I live on a planet. You know, we're all earthlings only border that does matter is that thin blue line of atmosphere that's blanketing, protecting us from that deadly vacuum of space. And the thing that ties us all together on that one planet in order to really achieve the success that we need, so we all aren't just surviving here or struggling to, but that we thrive here, is that we absolutely need to take that model from space and start behaving like crew members and not passengers here on Spaceship Earth. Oh my gosh, I think that would be ginormous in the grand scheme of how we really solve these problems. Christina Corp and Nicole Stott, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy Evans, who also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. Special thanks also to Christina Corp, producer of the AIM Higher Gala, which takes place on the 3rd of May at the London Science Museum to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Apollo 16 and the future of space exploration. You can find out more about Christina's organisation, Space for a Better World, by heading to Space spaceforabetterworld.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.